We'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we begin a new series. 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you're using the Bible behind one of the seats there, uh, it's page 225. We're big about the Bible around here. Uh, We want to hear what God's Word has to say, and I love that we are learners and students of God's Word. As you're turning there, let me put some context. Actually, over the last month, I've purposely designed last month to kind of bring context as we enter into 1 Samuel. Uh, um, but let me just start this way. Genesis, God creates everything. Uh, chapter 3, Adam and Eve's sin, the fall takes place, but God has a plan. He always did. He always knew what was going to be happening. And then as you move along in Genesis, we find out Genesis 12 with Abraham, God has a plan to build a people and to provide them a place, a sending base place. Move to Exodus, Leviticus. God is working his plan. God brings a people out. He calls them out. He brings them out. Exodus 19, remember we were there last month month. Uh, There they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God communicates them his plan that they're to be a people called out to be unlike any others, uh, to be given a place that they would be unlike to the world. Uh, Then Numbers, Deuteronomy, it just kind of adds into the fills in what God's people are wandering during a time before entering into the promised land. Then you come into Joshua. Remember Joshua 3? We were there last month. Joshua chapter 3. They put foot in the, for the first time in the promised land. The Jordan crosses back over. They look north. They look south. They look west. And this is all new territory. And they begin in Joshua over the next 10 years of Joshua, about that period of time, to begin taking over uh, the promised land, their sending base place that God has for them. Then you come into Judges and Ruth. We went through a series a, a few years ago on the book of Judges. They are in the promised land, and it is a catastrophe. Catastrophe, absolute catastrophe for a couple centuries of time. The book of Ruth takes place during some of that time. There are a few moments of uh, some delight going on uh, with Ruth and Deborah and others in there, but for the most of the part, it's just honestly, it's a cultic chaos. And I'm talking about God's people. That's what was going on at that time in the book of Judges and Ruth. In fact, the very last verse of of Judges, you can take a look over a page or two, and it says, "In in those days there was no king in Israel. That statement's putting there because God is moving things. There was no king in Israel, and it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And friends, the sad part is that is the definition, that is a description of God's people, not everyone other than God's people. God's people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Um, And then you have the book of Samuel. I want to tell you that last verse of Judges, there was no king in Israel. God is moving now everything from judgeship to kingship because the king is on the horizon, the ultimate king. Uh, but also in it, God is going to bring his people uh, back around. And I'll just say this. Have you noticed as, in all this as I talk about all this? Because it's been like a thousand years since Abraham when we enter into Samuel. It's been 350 years since the Exodus. Have you ever noticed in time that God's not in a hurry? I mean, really in it. I think we lose this, especially as Americans in our culture. We're destination people. We're like, just get to the end, get to the destination fast. I mean, get to the final product, move from point A to point B. That's what it's all about. It's about accomplishment. It's about achievement of those points. And I would say this, that's true with travel. 
I mean, it's like, let's get there, man. Let's get there. Uh, a week from Monday or a week in the coming week, Pastor Nate mentioned, we're going to be headed over to Scotland. It's like, like, let's get there, man. Let's just like get there. The, the, the process is the pain. Uh, getting there is the delight. We are that way. Hey, it's true with travel. It's true with business. Uh, back in my years in business, it was like, get the product out the door. Time is money. That is the fact of it. It's sometimes that way for education. It's like, get the degree, get done, and get on with it. Right? <laughs> right? Uh, all you in education, you need some hope right there. Some of you are professional students. Keep at it, man. But it's kind of like get to the destination with speed and efficiency. But that's not God. God is not in a hurry. And God is not in his hurry because, friends, people are not microwavable. People are not microwavable. Understand this. Yes, the Lord is about the destination of it all. But the Lord is also clearly about the journey of it all to the destination of it all. And people are messy. And people move slowly. I mean, what's the scoop with it? Like a horse can be walking the day it's born. I mean, and humans, we're not uh, with it. In fact, if we kind of took, if God was a get to the destination fast, I think there would be only 11 chapters in the whole Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God created, sin fell, but God's got a plan. Fast forward to Mark 14 and 15, and it's like Christ comes, dies on the cross, resurrects from the grave, uh, rises from the grave, and then it's like Acts chapters 1 and 2. He ascends, the Spirit comes, and then fast forward to Revelation 19 through 22, be done. That would be the Bible if God was that reality. But the fact of the matter is, God is not just getting somewhere, God is moving people somewhere. People are complicated. We are complicated. We are messy. And God understands that. And so God's not just going to run over the top of all of us to get to what he, what he has in store. God is moving things along at his pace because he's about the journey and he's about the destination. I think there's a lesson that I'm trying to drive home before we even get into the text of 1 Samuel is this. The ways of the Lord are unlike our ways. The ways of the Lord are unlike our ways. And friends, I will tell you, I think that what we're just talking about here, the ways of the Lord and, and how we struggle with that at times, I, I would put that in the, from ministry experience in the top three of, of what causes people just to stumble with the whole Lord and, and Scripture thing. I mean, because we're just destination people, and, and in it, it's like we just don't understand what God is trying to do, and, and so sometimes we just get very flippant about, God's in control, it's all going to take care, so whatever, and it's like, where's the thought? Where, where's, where's the wrestling with some things in it? And then sometimes it can be to the point where people are so frustrated with what the Lord is doing or not doing in their own viewpoint that they cannot, that God becomes irrational and God becomes very irritating. And we don't understand the ways of the Lord. So here, uh, I'm taking a few minutes to set us up because I, I think uh, in this first chapter plus, um, man, the ways of the Lord are on the table and we're gonna get really sensitive here. 
because the text is really that way. And just so you know, uh, we're going to be going, spending the majority of our time in the first 18 verses, verse 19 all the way through chapter 2, 11 is going to be like three, four, five minutes just reading it through, okay, just so you know in that, and you have some hope when you look at your watch, and we're in verse 16. All right, Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, the ways of the Lord and life with him. Um, we're entering narrative. Uh, embrace the journey of the narrative text. Uh, I will say this. Oftentimes when, when, when uh, uh, teachers, preachers begin a new series through a book of the Bible, they, they kind of do this. They tell the intro, they tell all the stuff, they tell the story of the book, and they ruin it. Uh, I'll just tell you, honestly, personally, it's a pet peeve of mine. Great in a class, but that's not how you and I read God's word. And by the way, that's not even how the original readers read it. I mean, it moves. Embrace the journey, okay? So we're just going to dive in and go at it. Let's just let the text unfold. In fact, just so you know, on Mother's Day, we're actually going to come back to chapter 1 and 2 for Mother's Day. So there's a number of things I'm going to leave on the editing floor. We'll pick them up a little bit later. Also, we start out with some really uncomfortable stuff. And you can't run and hide from the uncomfortable stuff. Amen. Trust me, I would prefer to, especially today. But we're going to hit on it. And some of it talks about polygamy. It talks about barrenness. It talks about even we would go, why would God allow that? But here's one of the wonderful things about what we call exegetical preaching, kind of going book by book, verse by verse, is, is you can't get away from you don't, what you don't want to talk about. It's not hobby horse preaching. It's God's word preaching. And so we're going to go there. Uh, I'm not going to avoid them, but I'm also not going to camp on them. Uh, both, I think, are important to understand. There are just some things, Deuteronomy 29, 29, we don't fully understand, and that's okay, because God's big enough. Okay? So let's get uncomfortable. Here we go. Verses 1 through 3. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. I love that name. It just sounds like a woodsy name, doesn't it? Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, a son of Eli, who, a son of Tohu, son of Zuf, son of Ephrathite. See, uncomfortable already reading. Uh, verse 2, he had two wives. Uncomfortable. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peninnah. I'm going to go with Penny, Okay. And Penny had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of El Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they're just put on the table. We'll be picking them up actually next Sunday, uh, these characters. They were priests of the Lord. So we have the setting in the first three verses here. First, Elkanah is introduced in verse 1. Some of Elkanah's pedigree is given here. Uh, there's actually some of his pedigree here that's noted that we don't quite fully know it with specificity exactly what, what that is and, and what it means, but it's likely telling us just one thing. It's likely telling us that Elkanah comes from a family of some means, okay? Uh, putting that out on the table there, and we'll just kind of leave it at that. It also tells us the way it's structured in verse 1. It's very familiar with what is told us in Judges 13, 2 about Manoah, Samson's son. By the way, uh, why is that important? Samson and the son to come, Samuel, are the only Nazarite for life, uh, as well as John the Baptist, 
dudes like in the Bible kind of thing. And so there's a partnership there in it. I think is really cool and scripture pulls it all together. Secondly, we, we learn that Elkanah had two wives. Two wives, not one, two. Heesh. Polygamy. All right, straight up. Polygamy, polygamy was not God's intention for humanity. Polygamy was not God's intention for humanity. I think you can find that directly out of Genesis 2, verses 18 and 24, because it's using the singular form. A man and a woman, a man and a wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the original language, it's very clear that that is the intention of it. You need to understand, though, in this, the culture of the day. That doesn't mean it's right, but you need to understand the culture of the time and what was going on. And I'll just say, it's shocking to us what was happening here. Uh, I mean, God's people are polygamists. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. God's people. God's people have bought into this. And by the way, this isn't just because it's like a man force thing. This is the whole society is involved in this. The whole society as a whole is. It just fits with what we saw at the end of Judges. Everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes. And don't lose this. This is God's people doing this. Uh, Even back a thousand years earlier to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah who was barren, in Genesis 16, Sarah says to Abraham, the Lord has prevented me from buried children. Uh, Go, Abraham, into my servant. Uh, It may be that I shall obtain children from her. We think messed up, right? It is. That was not God's plan. That was not God's design. That's not how it was supposed to happen, but I want to be very careful because before we get too pious in ourselves, I have just wondered at times over this week in preparing for this, what things in our culture would have totally freaked them out about God's people and what we do? Let's be very careful. And I'll say this, I am so grateful that the ways of the Lord include using someone in a situation even like that. Because friends, we're all broken. And the Lord is willing to use even us. So let's be very careful, drop the rock before we throw the stones. Gabeline says, uh, polygamy is never explicitly condemned in Scripture, but its complications and unsavory results are everywhere apparent. I want to tell you, today, read this text. Here's a reason why multiple wives or multiple husbands is a bad idea. Okay? Arnold, he says, the practice of multiple spouses was always and forever less than God's ideal. Wherever practice polygamy resulted in big problems, Friends, I don't like the ugly, I don't like the hard, I don't like the awkward stuff of the Bible, but it does press into us that God uses even broken people for his ultimate glory, and that gives me hope. So we learn of his two wives. We're told that he has one wife, Hannah. What are we told about her? She has no children. I'll make a comment on that in here a minute. She has no children. And then there's Penny. Uh, we're told that Penny had children. Okay, you got it? They're the sister wives. 
One has kids, one not. You got to understand the culture here in just a second, even more, but you can even understand it in our world. And I'll tell you, is that not set for cat fight? Everything bad about that. And that's what the text is doing, is putting the situation. So barrenness. Let me talk about this for a minute. There are not many things in life that are as devastating as barrenness. And some of you know about this. It's a devastating reality in any time in history. But there's something added in this day and age with the culture and what was going on. And I just put a couple pieces of information because we're going to get into Hannah here and, and into her heart. In Hannah's day... A household without children, the Jewish Talmud said, was viewed as good as dead. A household without children was viewed as good as dead. That was a cultural reality and even kind of some of the cultural teaching of the day. Add to it that in that day, not not biblically, but in that day, a barren wife was viewed as legitimate grounds for divorce. That's why actually uh, many think that what was going on was Elkanah married Hannah. Hannah couldn't have children, so instead of divorcing her, he got another wife to be able to have children to carry on the line of it all. Again, seems messed up to us, and it is messed up biblically, but that's what was going on. By the way, you just have to add the fact that it's an agrarian society. Children were the workers, You had more workers, you could farm more farm. You could farm more crops, you could have more income. By the way, add to it, children were your retirement plan. There was nothing else. I'm telling you, children were so important in the day. And another time, another day, it's even for for women in it all. Women just got their entire uh, self-identity in their children on it. Where honestly, children became their idol can relate to that sometimes, right? In it. So Hannah has no children. Penny has children. Verse 4 through 6. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penny, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Got that? Why? Because he loved her. And you may go, that's messed up, man. I mean, he's got like sister rights, but I'm telling you, he loved her. You've got to understand the culture of the day. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it okay. But you have to understand the culture of the day. He loved Hannah. By the way, here now we get awkward again. Look at the next statements. Though the Lord had closed her womb. And if you don't think, uh, maybe that's what it means, verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. We'll come on to that in just a second. Because the Lord had closed her womb two times. Straight up. Hannah couldn't have children because God had closed her womb. That's hard to handle, isn't it? Two times it stated This is kind of one of the things where, why would God's ways include causing this amazing woman to be bearing? I mean, what did she do to deserve this? Where's the love in this from the Lord? By the way, there's a number of barren women in Scripture. Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren for the first 20 years of her marriage. Rachel was barren. Manoah's wife was barren. Elizabeth, in her old age, gave birth. By the way, Mary was not barren, but Mary in the New Testament knew the cultural ramifications of being pregnant and unwed and a virgin. I mean, in all that. 
By the way, this is oftentimes when I read the names of those women where it kind of comes out, well, see, uh, um, uh, 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 all things work together for good. Oh, and they do. By the way, you've got to make sure and add verse 29 to Romans 8, 28, because 29 tells us to be conformed to the image of Christ in that. Or sometimes it could be said that, well, Hannah's in good company, and she is with Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Noah's wife and Elizabeth. I mean, she is. Or it could be said that, hey, it all works out for Hannah because we know that she's going to have Samuel. Or we could give quotes like Davis. uh, When people are without strength or without resources or without hope or without human gimmicks, then he, the Lord, loves to stretch out his hand from heaven. And by the way, all of those things are true. But I want to make an observation here. Job's friends were the most helpful to Job when they just zipped their lips. When Job was in utter life devastation. It's actually when Job's friends began opening their mouth and giving all their thoughts about it, everything went bad. Part of what I'm doing here is I'm saying be careful. Just because if you may know the rest of the story that Hannah does end up having a child, you cannot run away from the devastation that we're about to see in this young woman who doesn't probably even know this. She only knows she can't have children. I think a big part of this text is feel the pain. God is at work in the big picture. And God is also at work in the details of individuals. And we need to remember that. And even in the hard times, it's hard to grab a hold of what God is doing. And I'll just say this, we need to wrestle it with the Lord. And we're going to watch Hannah do that. Because know this, it just gets worse for her. It gets worse. So let's uh, see her pain. By the way, did you see it in 6? Her rival, isn't that interesting? Her sister wife. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. So it was this kind of thing. I've got children and you don't. And by the way, we're going to find out day after day, year after year. Hey, sister wives ain't getting along too well in this whole thing. Verse 7. So it went on year by year. What? that she provoked grievously to irritate her. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to, Penny used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah, let's get to the heart and the mind of Hannah. She wept and would not eat. This was a time of celebration. Every time they would come, Hannah would just be in utter weeping and she could not eat at this time of coming when they would all come together for these feasts and have these celebration times. She is hurting. Oh, and it gets worse. Verse eight. Sorry, you'll laugh in just a second. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, Hannah, why do you weep? Dude, let's give him benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's not sure right at this moment what's going on, okay? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? (laughs) Stop there, dude. But am I not more to you than ten sons? And I just wonder if Hannah's in her head going, you really want me to answer that? (laughs) I really do think that Elkanah really loved Hannah. 
and he really felt for her. I think hidden in the text or behind the text, you get that double portions stated that he loves her. I want to tell you, this girl's lonely. Her husband doesn't get it. The other wife picking on her. Oh, and it gets worse. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Getting the picture? This is not some random prayer, some little prayer, some no big prayer. She wept bitterly and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Number six, it's a Nazarite vow. It's unique. Nazarite vow oftentimes is a temporary thing. This is for life. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Got that underlined and highlighted in my Bible. Hannah is speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Let me just tell you the words that are being used here in these 10 verses, verses 7 through 16. She is weeping. She's weeping bitterly. She's not eating. She's deeply distressed. She's in affliction. She's troubled in spirit. She's pouring out her soul before the Lord. She's feeling worthless, great anxiety, and vexation. Oh, by the way, and this has been year after year after year after year for her. Oh, and the devastation from without is also piled on just from Elkanah with her husband. He's trying, but he's not understanding and bringing more hurt. From Penny, this rival's provoking her year after year. Eli, a priest, it's like, come on, dude. He can't even think the best of her. She's got devastation from out. She's got devastation within. And by the way, do not forget verses 5 and 6. There is devastation going on for her to deal with from above that the Lord has closed her womb. Friends, this is real life. This is not spirituality just painted with some cotton candy coated syrup. This is real stuff going on. By the way, before we go on, I just want to make sure that this kind of devastation is not a woman-only thing. It's a man thing, too. I'm telling you, that the devastation is staggering with men. My whole doctoral project, by the way, I finally received it back this week, last week, so I'll be making it available for if you want to have some 
reading time. <laughs> so we had 17 of some of our best men here, ages from 20s to the 70, all ages, all stages, all incomes. Anonymously, uh, one of the weeks we had them do a homework, what might cause them to go dormant? I was floored by the devastation. I was stunned by the loneliness. I was under a very, on my own, a very strict program on what data I would read and look at through the process, through that whole small group thing and what I would review and look at. And I was holding all that off until later, the Monday I read that. Went home, fell asleep, three hours. I never nap. I was so floored by the devastation that's going on. And I was given huge hope because I wasn't the only one. It was a rough time of life for me personally. Hannah is real. And this is real life. What does she do? Look at 17 and 18. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition to you that you have made to him. By the way, I don't think in this, and most other commentators as well from what I've read, I don't think in this that Eli is saying, Hey, the content of your prayer God has brought an answer to it. I don't think he's saying that because this is a very kind of a common priestly comment that would be made at this time of the year. In other words, as people during this feast time are praying, coming into the temple grounds, this would kind of be the thing that the priest would say to the people who's going out. I don't think, by the way, we're going to learn about Eli. Eli is not known for grand spiritual discernment. Okay? So I don't think that Eli was like the light bulb to her that God is doing the work now. I just think this is, and by the way, her comment back is kind of a similar comment back, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. But this statement. Then the woman went her way and ate. You see, words matter. That tells you something right there. She went and ate because she couldn't before. In this whole scene, in this whole setup. Oh, by the way, and her face was no longer sad. By the way, you notice how, how it's termed in here. It's not like her face was, 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 was happy for a few days. No, 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 no. This carries this idea. I'm just, I'll just cut to the chase of it. Something happened there. Something happened there this year, this time. Her with the Lord, something happened. And frankly, I love that the text doesn't tell us. Because we would end up making a program about it, writing books about it, and doing conferences about it. The Lord doesn't tell us. But friends, um, this week, I I'm just saying, to make the assumption that she walked away and Eli's words like, gave her the confidence that God was going to answer prayer, I think is reading into the content that is not there. I'm just saying, something happened there. 
And, and the fact that, that we wrestle with this, oftentimes we end up thinking, no, she had to walk away knowing that God would give her what her wanted because, uh, by the way, that tells us a whole lot about how we think about life. Because we can only have joy and peace and happiness when our circumstances are going well. And when God makes our circumstances going well, then God's been active. No, no, no. But God, for years and years and years, God had closed her womb. And this is the kinds of things that we don't want to deal with. We don't want to get down with. We don't want to dive into with. We just want to candy coat everything and have easy believism over it. I'm just so out on all that. And like, let's deal with the reality of what's going on. This woman is crushed. And yet something happened there. I'm telling you, friends, something happened. Some, oh, some kind of transfer took place there. Some kind of exchange between her and the Lord happened. When she was at this place, for some reason, at this time of the year, on this year, something was exchanged. Something took place in her thinking, in her commitment, and in her understanding. It's kind of like all her hurt, all her shame from the culture, all her own anger was exchanged here. And she walked away no longer sad. Like, God, I'm putting it in your hands for you to deal with. No four-step program. Just a heart poured out before the Lord speaking from that place. I got to tell you, there's part of this that I just cannot help but to think of Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus left it there with the Lord. Not my will, Lord, but yours. There he is with the Father. Not my will, Father, but yours. And Hannah left it there. So at her end, so broken, and so no longer able to bear it. And she left it there at the Lord's feet. I want to tell you, friends, that's maturity. That's theology that changes life. The ways of the Lord in life with. I'm going to be bold enough right now just to say that some of you here need to do what Hannah did. And I don't even mean just in a moment. I mean you need to start wrestling it out with the Lord. And you need to be thinking through your theology of how you are thinking about life and what you think you deserve and who's really in control because loved ones, the Lord is in control. And that even includes the Lord is the one who allows hard things to have happen. And I don't know, maybe there's things from your past and your life where you are still, you are just at a place where you are so angry about it and so bitter about it and so irritated with God about it all. And listen, I can, we can understand that, can't we? Part of what I'm pushing here is to try and help us understand Hannah and her grief. And when we understand that, we can understand the depth of what her leaving it there. It was not some casual, come forward, make a statement, and all's good. Oh, so over that. 
Instead, this is the kind of thing with depth of God working in her life and her wrestling out with the Lord and her coming to a place where she makes it and is like, I'm going to leave it there, done with it, and God, you're big enough to handle it, even if I can't fully get it all, I'm going to leave it there, Lord, and I'm going to walk on knowing that you're in charge and you are going to use what's happened in my life for your glory, for your good, and for mine, and God, I'm going to leave it there and move on as some of you got to do that. We're stuck in that place of demanding of God what God should give to us. And being God to God. This is what should have happened. This is what I should have got. Other people got this in their life. I don't have this. Loved ones, the Lord loves you. We heard that last Sunday in Revelation 1. A resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ, he loves you. Remember when John fell in fear, thinking he was going to die? What did the Lord do? Shifted the stars. (laughs) Right hand. Fear not. I've got it. Making that exchange. We're the ones who usually aren't willing to make the exchange. Maybe this week, maybe today, you need to do some dealing with the Lord. It doesn't make the hurt go away. But in this statement here for Hannah, you know what? I'll bet Penny nipped and nagged at her again and again. But she was now dealing with it differently. Let me read the rest of the text for today. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. By the way, the Lord knew her of her, and he didn't forget her. That's biblical terminology. God did a work. Why did God do a work? Because God was the one who had closed her womb. God now reversed that. And in due time, I've actually got due time underlined because we think that it was like a day later or a week, I don't know how long. In due time, she was pregnant and she conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the early yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up. Time has fast forwarded a couple years. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, back in that day would be at two or three years old generally, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. By the way, I think in all that, there's some loving exchange between Elkanah back to her because he understands her vow. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull of ephah, uh, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and they brought 
Eli, and she said, oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. This is a couple years later. Uh, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. By the way, parents, your children are not your ultimate possession. Therefore, I have lent them to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent, Samuel, to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. How could he do that at two or three? That's a statement that will continue on in the book. Chapter two, and Hannah prayed and said, and I'm just gonna read this through and we'll finish here, but know this. Being pressed in by the ways of the Lord One of the ways to see if that has been dealt with and worked out in someone's life is if they are able to then praise the Lord. Okay? Watch. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Man, she has a big view of God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. That's a big deal. God knows what he's doing. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. Woo. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Let me just say that again in our culture. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. How sweet is that? But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord, that's cool, in the presence of Eli the priest. And we'll pick it up there next week. As we conclude, um, Maybe today for you as we conclude in song, maybe today you just need to sit and be sung over. Maybe you're in a Hannah-like place. Maybe, I don't know, maybe today you just need to grab someone next to you and just say, would you, would you just pray over me while we sing here? No way do I want to make a spectacle of you. 
but in every way, if the Lord is working on you, I want to press in. And if there is bitterness and anger and things that you are harboring and holding, loved one, loved one, wrestle it out with the Lord. So Lord, I ask that you would be the one who does a work in our lives because you are the one who is at work in our lives. Father, I I would far prefer to preach on really happy stuff. And there is joy in this. But there's also in this, I've just been so pressed in this week on just the weight of what a woman like Hannah is going through. You're, you're, you were you're the one who was allowing this and, and just the, the heaviness of sin and of culture and of even loved ones close by and, and oh God, the heavy weight of it all. We're broken people living in a broken world. You are the master carpenter. You are the one who fixes broken things. And God, you are at work and doing things in our lives. In the big picture of moving things that we can't see right now. So we need help. God, I thank you that you are so understanding. You understand our frailness. And you work in and around our frailness. Father, I would pray that would be the case now. Maybe there's some here that this morning that have heavy, heavy weights. Maybe even it's the whole issue of barrenness. Or, or things in their past or in their present. Or just that have just been those, those digging, just hard things. They just keep hanging and hanging and holding on to them and anchoring them down. And even bringing about a bitter spirit or a hard heart. God, I pray that you would do a work. You would give them hope. And you would show yourself to them. And God, that they would pour their heart out to you. And that they would make an exchange. That they would leave it in the hands of you. The one who is the one who can make all things right. God, I pray for their endurance. I pray for their maturity in this that this would be a work in their life, maybe a pruning in their life or maybe a maturing work in their life, but God, would that happen? May we not leave a text like this quickly, but may we stay in it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.